Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? So later this month, I'm going to be celebrating a birthday. I mean, well, I say I'm celebrating, but really I'll just be taking a few days off to go to a quiet cabin in the North Georgia mountains and not do anything. Anyway, it got me to thinking about stuff I used to want back when I was a kid. You know, the kind of things that I was hoping for for birthdays and holidays. And back in those days, well, a lot of the stuff the kids wanted didn't exactly fall into the category of tech. I mean, you had your Cabbage Patch Kids. They were created not too far from where I grew up, actually. Uh, You had your G.I. Joe figures. Barbie was, of course, a big deal. And later on, we get into slightly more techie stuff like the Transformers. Uh, By the way, I always felt that those toys were incredibly creative. You know, you had designers who had to start with a mundane form factor like a truck and then figure out how would they design joints and hinges and stuff so that a kid could turn that truck into a robot. Also, quick rant before I finally get to the point of this episode. I don't care for the Michael Bay Transformer films at all for lots of reasons, but one of the big ones is that during the transformation scenes, nothing makes visual sense on screen. 
It all just becomes like CGI angles flashing in front of your face until a car is suddenly a robot or vice versa. But, you know, the toys had to move in specific ways for the transformations to work. It had to make sense because the designers were working in the real world. And I thought it was kind of a cop out to just have this flashy CGI come up on screen with no apparent logic showing how a robot went from one form to another. And those those toy designers were really creative. All right. Rant over. Anyway, when I was 10 years old, uh, the, the holiday season when I was 10, a toy came out that if I had been just a couple of years younger, I probably really would have wanted one. I thought it was cool, but I was a bit too old for the toy. And it was a toy that harkened back to the animatronics at Disney theme parks. And I was already a big Disney World fanatic at this point. And it looked like a teddy bear, but this one could talk and it could sing and the mouth would move when it talked and sung, and it could also blink, and its name was Teddy Ruxpin. Now, I would later learn that, one, this was not actually a teddy bear. I mean, it was, let's all be real, but in the lore of Teddy Ruxpin, Teddy is not a bear at all. He's an iliop. And you might say, well, what's an iliop? Well, apparently it's a critter that looks a lot like a teddy bear. Didn't start off that way, but that's what they are now. And it sounds a bit silly to me, but then the creator of Teddy Ruxpin built a sort of mythology around the character and the world that this character, you know, lived in. And I think it's pretty admirable, actually. It's really impressive how extensive that mythology goes. Uh, Two, I learned that this creator, a guy named Ken Forsey, had previously worked as an Imagineer at Disneyland. He, in fact, worked on one of my favorite rides of all time. Disney's Haunted Mansion. To immortalize him, there's a word scramble of his name that appears on a tombstone in the cemetery scene in the Disneyland Haunted Mansion ride. So if you have eagle eyes, you spot a tombstone that reads Nakesorf, N-E-K-E-E-S-O-R-F, that's actually supposed to be an anagram of Ken Forsey, even though the word scramble gave him one too many E's and left out one of the S's. So today... I thought I would talk about Forsey, his work as an Imagineer and beyond, and the creation of Teddy Ruxpin, which really was an iconic toy in the mid-1980s. This is a crazy story. Like, it spans multiple decades, all the pieces that would ultimately come together in the form of Teddy Ruxpin. But before I dive into it, I need to call out an incredibly thorough docu-series that is available on YouTube. And by thorough, that's putting it mildly. It's by Billy Tuma, and it's a nine-part video series on the life and work of Ken Forsey. And the shortest episode in this nine-part series is 45 minutes long. The longest one is an hour and 22 minutes long. So I think you could call this work an exhaustive treatment of Forsey's life and work. The docuseries is called Ken Forsey, that's F-O-R-S-S-E, come dream with me tonight. So if you want to learn more about Forsey after this episode, I highly recommend you check out this docu-series. Like I said, it is uh, thorough. Uh, Also, it is very clearly made by people who deeply, deeply love the lore of Teddy Ruxpin, as in like the, the fictional story that Teddy Ruxpin uh, inhabits. Tuma clearly put a ton of work 
into the series. He deserves more views. I mean, a lot of these episodes have right around a thousand views and y'all, I mean, this is like professional grade level work. It deserves to be seen uh, by a wider audience. Uh, I get that. Like the Teddy Ruxpin community is relatively niche, but it's a fascinating uh, work on its own, just detailing how this, this person became who he was uh, because unfortunately Ken Forsey passed away back in 2014. Uh, but how he became the man he was and how he ended up bringing Teddy Ruxpin to life. So Ken Forsey was a creative kid. He grew up in California. He wanted to pursue a career in art. He graduated high school and rather than going on to college, he sought employment. He was a very practical kid. He landed a gig working in the mailroom for this little company called Walt Disney Animation Studios. The company was already incredibly famous at this point. It had already put out numerous feature-length animated films by the time that Ken joined. And of course, he was in the mailroom, so not really on the animation side of things. However, in a stroke of fortune, for Ken at least, the animation studios were in a bit of a jam. Production was running over schedule on the film Sleeping Beauty, and the company needed to bring on more artists to help speed things up. So, Forsey interviewed, and he took an animation test to prove that he had the artistic chops to work for the most famous animation studio in the world. And he passed. So he was hired on. That's pretty darn impressive because, you know, Forsey was not a professional artist. He was fresh out of high school. He was just a very gifted student and a gifted artist. And so he was put to work. And his job was to serve as an in-betweener. So these are animators who are in charge of drawing the frames of animation that fall between the start and the end of like a short animated sequence. So you'll have a primary artist who's really designed, you know, in charge of the look and the feel of a specific character often. And they will draw the character in two different poses or situations, uh, one being at the start of a sequence and one being at the end. So let's say that you want to animate a sequence in which a character sees that a glass is about to fall off a table. And so they dive to catch the glass before it can hit the ground and they safely catch it in their hands and they land flat on the floor. And that's your sequence. Well, the animator who's in charge of the character will probably just draw one frame of the character seeing that the glass is about to fall and then draw the final frame of the character on the ground, uh, safely holding the glass. And it's down to the in-betweeners to draw all the frames that come in between those two so that you have an actual animated sequence. And that's what Forsey worked as. He worked as an in-betweener on Sleeping Beauty. Most in-betweeners produced between 30 to 50 drawings per day. 30 was kind of your what you were shooting for. Uh, now, keep in mind that film plays back at 24 frames per second. So if you're doing one animated frame uh, at a time and you're doing the 24 frames per second, then you're really talking about producing maybe one to two seconds of animation each day. So it was a very huge amount of work. And remember, that's for one character in a sequence. That's not for everything else there. And it was just one step that was needed in the process of creating an animated film. But Ken reportedly really enjoyed working for Disney. I mean, you know, he was interested in art. He was working for the most famous animation company in the world. Uh, clearly, he was in the right spot at the right time. However, 
Once Sleeping Beauty was in the can, having gone well over budget and over time, Disney no longer really needed this inflated workforce of artists. They had more people than were required to do the rest of the work they had. So Ken and several other in-betweeners found themselves out of a job. He would then study under the mentorship of a special effects technician named Ellis Berman. So if you're a fan of classic Universal monster movies, kind of like the second wave of classic Universal monster movies, you've probably seen some stuff that Berman worked on. Uh, So he's like a practical effects technician. So now Ken Forsey was moving from creating two-dimensional drawings for animation to working with three-dimensional materials and to create things like costumes and props. And Forsey learned lots of different skills in this process. He learned about sculpting and he learned about carpentry and he learned about uh, how to work with electrical circuits. And he worked with a lot of materials he had never worked with before, like plaster and rubber and fur and even makeup. So his skill set expanded, but he was having trouble finding like steady work. Uh, there were a few promising projects, including a possible film adaptation of Lord of the Rings, which involved uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. People who are deep in the fandom culture know who Ackerman is or was. But uh, yeah, he he was possibly going to work on this Lord of the Rings project. In fact, he had been uh, tapped to sculpt some models that would be part of the pitch to Tolkien. But um, while Tolkien was impressed with the effects work, the models and stuff, uh, he hated the story treatment that was generated for the Lord of the Rings film. So he, he nixed it. It didn't go anywhere. So in 1959, Ken enlisted in the U.S. Army. And he was in his early 20s at this point, so still a very young man, and he served until 1962 and then received an honorable discharge. Reportedly, uh, he was very much not in favor of guns. It's kind of interesting that he went into the army voluntarily this way. But yeah, he uh, he he won a, a, an award for marksmanship, but he did not like guns. Uh, he was mostly active in doing things like working on uh, entertainment and stuff for troops. So he was still kind of pursuing his artistic interests wherever he could within the army. After his service, Forsey would join a company called Universal Products and lead a product line called Artistry in Dimension. And Forsey was using his expertise in creating three-dimensional objects out of stuff like fiberglass to make historic replicas. So, you know, like, Stuff's like suits of armor, that kind of thing. So let's say that you're new money and you want your stately home to have some stuff that looks like antiques, but you don't want to have to go through the trouble of actually securing real antiques. You would go to a company like Universal Products. I'm sure you've been to stores where you've looked around. You're like, oh, this looks like an antique globe or this looks like an antique shield that you would hang on the wall. And in fact, it's made out of something else entirely. Well, that's the kind of thing 4C was making. Uh, So it was be stuff for things like set dressing, but also, you know, just consumer products. However, 4C was restless and he wasn't super happy with just working in uh, the Universal Products company. So when he saw a job opening that was again at the Walt Disney Company, he jumped at it. Now, this time, It would not be in the animation department. 
Instead, it was in WED Enterprises or WED Enterprises. In this case, WED is not your typical acronym. It's actually Walt Disney's initials, Walt Elias Disney. And this would be the Imagineering Department. This was the group of people who would be in charge of creating the materials and the uh, the props and the characters that would be seen in attractions at Disney parks, because those were just really becoming a thing. Like Disneyland had opened in 1955, so it had been open a few years earlier. But now Walt Disney was really exploring the possibility of creating animated like shows that would exist in the real world. This idea of bringing the audience into animation and having animation all around the audience. So Forsey landed a job there and he got to work on an attraction that would be a real game changer for Disney, which we'll talk about after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans. The chaos 
in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, we're back. So Ken Forsey gets a job at WD Enterprises, and he's working as an Imagineer. And his first gig is to work on the Enchanted Tiki Room. If you've never been to Disneyland or Disney World or any place where they have the Enchanted Tiki Room, I don't know if it's in the other parks, but I know it's in those two. Uh, well, then it's a it's a sit down theatrical experience where these various tropical birds sing songs and tell jokes to you. And uh, it's an audio animatronic show and one of the more famous ones because it was the first big one. And I've done episodes on audio and animatronics in the past. So the story goes that Walt Disney was on a holiday trip with his wife and they encountered a shop that had a little clockwork bird in it. And it sparked Disney's imagination. And he wanted to create an attraction. Originally, he wanted it to be a restaurant that would have mechanical creatures in it, specifically mechanical tropical birds. And they would follow a programmed routine. And it would bring together elements of puppetry, storytelling, animation, clockwork mechanisms, and ultimately pneumatic systems. Uh, Over time, it would morph from a restaurant concept to a sit-down theatrical attraction. Now, the early system for the Tiki Room was both ingenious and, by today's standards, very primitive. So to match the movement of birds' beaks with the soundtrack, like how do you get it so that the birds appear to actually be singing the words and they're not just opening and closing their beaks randomly and you just hope that it lines up with the music. Well, the Imagineers created a system in which audio that had the audio of the show stored on magnetic tape would then also cause these metal reeds to vibrate. And these vibrating metal reeds would close a circuit that would control a pneumatic valve and that would allow air to pass through tubes going to the various birds in this attraction. And when they did, that would power the uh, the mechanical system inside the bird so that it would open its beak. And when the valve would shut off, uh, the air would vent out, the beak would close. It would go back to its resting position, which was closed. So by opening and closing this valve, you could cause the bird to open and close its beak. And those opening and closings were in time with this metallic reed vibrating. Uh, And that, again, was driven by the audio on the magnetic tape. As for what Forsey was doing, well, that's not entirely clear. He wasn't an engineer. He wasn't one of the ones designing the actual engineering system. Most likely, he was working in the model shop. He was helping, you know, get the, the birds show ready, you know, doing things like installing feathers and that kind of stuff, painting, that that sort of thing. Uh, He wasn't a lead on the project, right? He had just come in and started and was working at a lower level, but he was part of a larger team. While Forsey was working with WED, he also had the opportunity to develop a puppet show outside of Disney, and it was intended to be a children's show, one that matched fantastical elements with tales of empathy and compassion. 
So he's thinking about this idea. This is independent. This was not unusual at Disney at the time. There were a lot of people who were considering themselves more like independent contractors rather than Disney employees. Uh, it would be a little bit before Disney would change into a company where, you know, you were a Disney employee and you weren't just like work for hire who would then find themselves out of work once the project was over. So a lot of people at the time would pursue other work in addition to the work they did for Disney and 4C was no different. So he came up with this idea and he started to create this kind of fantasy world that he wanted to bring to life. And, you know, maybe he took some inspiration from works like Tolkien's Middle Earth series, but he was really wanting to gear this toward children and to give a message of compassion and empathy for kids. So he really saw it as a way of, of sending positive messages and, and sending messages of, of things like friendship and support and love and that sort of thing. And the main character in his mythology was a little critter whose name was Simeon Greep. And he would feature a lot of the personality that you would later spot in Teddy Ruxpin. Like he was a very sweet, compassionate character who saw the good in people, even if they couldn't see it in themselves. There was another character, uh, a supporting character, a mushroom-like figure nicknamed Fearful, but his actual name was Dun-Dun-Dun Teddy Ruxpin. See, Teddy Ruxpin wasn't originally a teddy bear at all. He was a timid little fantasy critter that kind of looked like a mushroom. Totally makes sense, right? So anyway, The Adventures of Simeon Greep was this ambitious idea that Ken Forsey had, and it was one that was going to require a lot of money to actually get it to production. Like He wanted to make this fully realized puppet show with really cool environments. He didn't want it to look like a little puppet theater that, that a lot of the other puppet shows at the time were using. He wanted the world of the television, you know, program to be the puppet theater. The TV itself would serve as the borders of this mystical world. So Forsey would take on various projects in addition to his full-time gig at Wed Enterprises and continue to develop this idea, all with the goal of eventually producing this puppet show. He was doing some of the work a little bit reluctantly because while he was creative and an inventor, he didn't consider himself a writer. So originally he had these ideas, but he wanted to hire someone else to actually write the stories. Like he wanted to be able to, to kind of, you know, work a story, but have a writer actually put that into shape, you know, to frame it properly into actual words. Problem was he couldn't find anyone to do that. So it was down to him. So he kind of became the chronicler of this, this world of his own creation. Meanwhile, Back at Disney, 4C was put on two projects like the It's a Small World ride, which was originally constructed for the 1964 World's Fair. So he assisted in painting and probably some sculpting, some stuff like that. But again, he wasn't a lead designer. He was part of the team. Uh, he also actually traveled with the ride to New York in order to help the ride uh, stay operating because originally it was a little finicky. So he was there to help fix when things broke down. He also was in charge of cleaning and repainting figures at the end of the day to make sure that it was ready for the next day. He did this for a while until it was show ready, really, and then left to go back home. Uh, he also reportedly got very, 
very sick of the theme song It's a Small World After All, which, you know, same. Forsey kept working on his Simeon Greep project. He even built out a set piece in order to show potential investors the work that he was envisioning. He had this villain called Tweeg, and the villain lived in a, a tower. So he ended up uh, out of pocket, essentially, paying to create this really large puppet set. It had to be big enough for puppeteers to move around in freely while still controlling the the puppet of the villain. Uh, and the construction process did not go quite as planned. Uh, for one thing, there was a, a, a bit of a fire that caused some costly damages. And it meant that Forsey ultimately kind of ran out of money to work on the thing. Like he spent about as much as he was willing to spend and hit his limit. And so the whole project was figuratively put on the back burner after having been literally burned earlier. Forsey took a larger part in working on the Haunted Mansion attraction for Disneyland. That attraction has its own fascinating history. We've talked a little bit about it on this show in the past. I talked about Pepper's Ghost and things like that. It's an attraction that changed many times over the course of its development. It originally was supposed to be a walkthrough attraction. Forsey worked on sets and characters and designs and effects, so he was more involved in this one than he had been in the previous ones. And he earned a spot in the cemetery scene, along with eight other designers who also worked on the ride. So if you see those weird tombstones with odd names, those are anagrams or references to nine of the designers who worked on the original ride. After that, Forsey went on to work for an attraction for a Florida project with Disney. This is what would become Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. And the project he worked on was the Country Bear Jamboree, an attraction that was so popular that the Disney company later decided to build a version of it in its California park, too. So that one actually originated at Disney World and then was uh, also built in Disneyland. Now, by this time, Walt Disney, the man, he had passed away. Uh, and many people at the Walt Disney Company felt that things were changing and not necessarily for the better. That new management at the company was working in a totally different way from how Walt did things. And Forsey would not be the only person to make this decision, but he decided that he was ready to leave and pursue other opportunities. So he resigned from the Walt Disney Company and sought out other work. Now, one of the opportunities he would pursue was Forsey's own creation, the Simeon Greep Project. So Forsey brainstormed ideas for nearly 40 episodes, something like 38 or 39 episodes of this puppet show. Uh, this puppet show still didn't have any investors. It didn't have a home. It didn't even have puppets, really. Uh, he had a whole world built out conceptually with Simeon Greep as the protagonist, uh, who had an insect-like buddy named Grubby, and then you had the villain uh, in the form of Tweeg, and then Forsey's ideas would see these characters explore a fantasy world that would in some ways, like I said, mirror the complexity of Tolkien's Middle-Earth, but maintain that childlike sensibility. So Middle-Earth is not really meant for little kids. This work that Forsey was thinking of would be. And to call it an ambitious undertaking is a huge understatement. 
But another opportunity that he would pursue that would actually earn him some money was with the creators Sid and Marty Croft, brothers who made some truly bonkers entertainment, mostly for kids, over the 1970s, really in the late 60s and into the 70s. Uh, so I'm talking about stuff like H.R. Puffin stuff. And that's actually a little bit before my time. I did not grow up with H.R. Puffin stuff. And after watching clips of it, I guess I should be glad because I'm, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't be terrified. It's hard to think about how I would feel from a modern lens, but it is so weird. Like, it's amazing to me that they were able to get that, you know, on the air. <laughs> like, and it's not bad. It's just weird. And you know, if you were to pitch an idea like H&R Puffin stuff or HR Puffin stuff today uh, to anyone, it would be a really tough sell unless you were pitching it as like some sort of late night stoner comedy for Adult Swim or something. Uh, anyway, other stuff that Sid and Marty Croft produced includes Land of the Lost, which I absolutely loved when I was a kid. I watched the heck out of that show. Uh, also, uh, Electra Woman and Dinah Girl, which got a cheeky reboot as kind of a web series many years later, back in 2016, I think, maybe 2014, somewhere around there. I remember that it had uh, Grace Helbig and Hannah Hart, two people known for their work on YouTube, playing the main characters. And Forsey worked on at least three different Sid and Marty Croft series. So he worked on Land of the Lost. He worked on a show called Far Out Space Nuts, and he worked on The Lost Saucer, which is another like science fiction-y show. The Croft method was about as different from W.E.D. as you could get. You know, it was no Disney. Uh, the teams that 4C had access to, they had very limited resources. So 4C and his team had to work with whatever they had at hand in order to make the stuff they needed to make. And they typically had very, very short deadlines. However, those kind of, of challenges really gave Forsey and others on his team uh, the, the inspiration to create effective solutions while meeting deadlines. Like, I often think that when you have a wide open sandbox where anything is possible, it can actually be harder to create stuff in that environment sometimes than it would be if you had lots of restrictions. Because then you're thinking, well, how can I work within these restrictions to do whatever I need to do? And you can get some really creative solutions. That's kind of what happened with Sid and Marty Croft. It's not always the case, but that's typically how I find it. Like, if the world is my oyster, it's much harder for me to really narrow down on getting stuff done. But if I've got some restrictions in place, it suddenly becomes easier to ideate, at least for me. And I suspect Forsey found the same thing to be true. Now, in the mid-1970s, the Crofts got the chance to make their own theme park, an indoor theme park, based in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. So when we come back, we're going to talk about this theme park that would make a very brief splash and then fade away, and how 4C was part of it. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, so we're in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the mid-1970s. Things are groovy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bebe. And uh, at the Omni Center, they said and Marty Croft got the opportunity to make an indoor theme park. So today, the Omni is home to the news network CNN. That's where CNN's headquarters are. It's at the Omni. But in the 1970s, it was the home, very briefly, of a very weird theme park. Now, I'm not quite old enough to remember this park because it didn't last long enough for me to really go as any sort of kid capable of forming memories. Uh, I do remember that the way to the theme park was an eight-story tall 
freestanding escalator. I mean, this escalator is beyond huge. You take a look at it and you're like, there's no reason anything needs to be that big. But uh, I would go to the Omni as a kid, you know, because science fiction conventions were held in the Omni and my dad being a science fiction author would often attend. And I would always wonder, where does that escalator even go to? Well, back in the day, it went to the top level of a five-story indoor theme park. And then you would work your way down floor by floor through the, the park. Uh, anyway, the park actually just opened and closed in 1976. Within five months, it was open and then closed. It was a spectacular failure. Now, this wasn't because the attractions weren't imaginative or creative. They were. And 4C was a big part of that, having brought his expertise from Wed Enterprises to work on rides and sets and characters for the new theme park. But it was poorly attended and it was very expensive to run. And the money ran out and the Crofts tried to get the, the creditors to hold off on demanding their money back so that they could you know, get a good footing because they they were they believed that if they could get through the winter and into, you know, 1977, that they could turn things around. But they weren't given that chance. And so the whole park had to be shut down. 4C received word from a former colleague from way back in the Universal Products days about a company that was producing a technology called Microphonographs. So this company was called Microsonics originally, uh, and the technology was this small device. It was like a small enough to be a handheld. And it looks like a little cassette player almost. But instead of playing cassettes, it actually played microphonograph discs. These discs were mounted on plastic plates, and they would actually be stationary inside the device. You would put the plate inside the device, and the stylus would be the part that would move. So instead of the disc rotating and the stylus just travels down the groove, the stylus would rotate and go down the groove that way and the disc would stay, you know, stationary. It's kind of crazy. Uh, but this whole technology spawned another company called Microsound. And this is one that Ken Forsey was interested in. So Microsound marketed this technology as a way to bring sound to storybooks, among other things. So you would buy a book. And it would come with one of these sound plates and you would have this device. You would put the sound plate in the device and it would play little bits that would, you know, be incorporated into the book. Maybe you would have a section of the book where you were told to push play and it would play some audio that was, you know, related to the book. Or maybe it would actually read out part of the story. The disc plates could only hold about a minute's worth of sound each. But this would you know, be fine for a children's book. You might have a few to cover the entirety of the book, but you know, the kids could actually read along as they listen to the audio in this little separate device. And 4C's buddy thought that the Simeon Greep project might work well as a series of books. He wasn't able to get it done as a puppet show, but maybe he could make children's books and incorporate this micro sound technology. Well, by this stage, Forsey had decided to do some name swapping. He decided Simeon Greep was not a good name for his, his uh, protagonist. And so he ended up taking the name of a different character, that mushroom-like character whose real name was Teddy Ruxpin, but he was called Fearful. Well, Forsey was like, Teddy Ruxpin's a better name. I'm going to make that the name of my protagonist. And so 
Simeon Greep became Teddy Ruxpin. He still wasn't a teddy bear. He was a little furry critter, but he, he didn't look particularly like a teddy bear. Uh, so the character design remained pretty much the same. It's just the name had changed. But there were some business shenanigans going on in the background. It had nothing to do with Forsey. Forsey was a stand-up guy. But the business shenanigans meant that another company that was using the exact same microphonograph technology was able to land a lucrative deal with Fisher-Price. And Microsound, a competing company, really had nowhere to go. So that didn't end up going anywhere. However, in the process, Forsey learned a lot about the publishing world and children's books, which would come in handy later on. That's foreshadowing. Forsey next joined up with a couple of creatives to form a company called Brown Squirrel Productions, which set out to try and get funding to produce several different projects, among them Forsey's long-imagined puppet series, The Adventures Now of Teddy Ruxpin. They worked up some more designs, they refined some characters, they even built out some of the stuff they would need to produce the show and pitch it to the networks, but again, they came up dry for funding. They went to Quaker Oats and tried to get some money from them. Quaker Oats had previously bankrolled the, uh, the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Quaker Oats was not interested. And so they didn't really have anyone who was willing to, to fund production so that they could shoot a pilot. So they decided to do it themselves, which y'all, just so you know, don't do that. <laughs> it almost never works out. Anyway, uh, they get together in 1979 to shoot the pilot for the adventures of Teddy Ruxpin. The puppets they made were really sophisticated. They were operated by controls mounted on bars far beneath the puppets. So like the bars fed cables down through them and by pulling on cables, you could manipulate parts of the puppet. So it's like a marionette, but in reverse, right? A marionette is suspended by strings and by pulling the strings, you can make the puppet move. In this case, the puppet is mounted on essentially a pole and various cables are fed down through the pole and the cables attach to different features in the puppet. So pulling on the cables, you can do things like make the puppet blink or make its mouth move, that sort of stuff. But like so many other attempts with this particular story, the adventures of Teddy Ruxpin, the, their efforts were in vain. They produced a, a pilot and they showed it around. They sent it to the networks. They sent it to brand new cable companies like HBO and no one bit. And because they had self-funded the project and even had to lean on, you know, establishing credit to pay for some of it, uh, they were left footing the bill. And so their partnership ultimately dissolved and 4C packed up his puppets. He then went on to work in effects and production as sort of a freelancer. He contributed his talents to some big budget Las Vegas shows, including one that had a 40 foot long model of the Titanic that would sink on command. He also did more work with Sid and Marty Croft. He worked on a project called Pizza Productions. It was meant to be a, a way for pizza companies that wanted to compete with like Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza to go and get animatronic figures that could entertain in their restaurants. So this was a big thing in the eighties and the, the early to mid eighties were these pizza places that had these animatronic shows in them. Showbiz pizza and Chuck E. Cheese were the two that were best known. And of course, Chuck E. Cheese is still a thing, but uh, yeah, Sid and Marty Croft tried to compete with pizza productions looking more to be like, you know, 
we'll create the product. You just pay us and we'll install it in your place. It didn't really work out, though, uh, by the time that, you know, they were really ready to push it. That trend was already kind of on the decline. And so uh, he, you know, Forcey did work on animatronics. He helped design characters for the pizza production stuff, but it just didn't go anywhere. But around the time he was working on this, he was starting to think about making animatronics portable. You know, at this stage, all animatronic figures were bolted to stages and stuff. They, you couldn't move them around. So he was thinking, what if you could incorporate animatronics into something that could freely move about a space? Now, initially, he was not intending this to be a toy. Instead, Forcey was thinking about fully costumed characters at places like theme parks. Like if you go to Disney World or Disneyland and you see like Tigger, you know, Tigger's covered in head to toe, right? It's it's a costume that fully envelops the performer inside. And they you know, these performers are very expressive, but they are limited by the costumes, right? The costumes can't do everything that someone could do if they were just appearing as a face character. You know, they can't speak. Some of them could do things like open and close their eyes and uh, open and close their mouths, but they couldn't actually talk. So Forsey started to think about an approach that would allow performers to use pre-programmed sequences built into a system that could be housed inside a costume that would let them do all sorts of performances. So the performer would still be inside the costume and still move the body, but a program would control mechanisms in the head and maybe also include a a speaker built into the costume to project audio and create a more robust performance that could go anywhere and not just be secured to a stage. So Ken Forsey met another engineer named William Munn, who was developing robots for film and TV productions. And together they started to work on this kind of idea you know, simplifying animatronics a little because one, you're going to have a human being in this costume. And two, by simplifying, you keep complexity and cost down at a manageable level. So then Ken Forsey creates a company called Alchemy 2. Meanwhile, his old employer, two times over, the Walt Disney Company, is getting ready to launch the Disney Channel, which is going to have various programming on it, you know, 16 hours a day. So Forsey petitions to be the builder of costumes for a live action Winnie the Pooh series. And he says he'll make sophisticated animatronic costumes that will have more expression in them than just a static, you know, costume that you might see in the parks. So he offers to create a Winnie the Pooh costume to kind of show his technology to the Disney Channel. And the Disney Channel at that point was pretty skeptical that he would be able to pull this off, especially since at the time he was a one man operation. And then he says, if you like it, you can agree to pay me for it and to you know, hire me on to create all the other characters. So they move forward. And then Forsey hires on several people, some of whom he had worked with in the past as Imagineers, and they develop the prototype for the Winnie the Pooh costume. The Disney Channel executives love it. They see it. They're like, wow, this really is what we need. And so Alchemy 2 lands a contract and gets to work in earnest on the various characters from the Winnie the Pooh live action series. So, you know, typically these these character heads had something like a bicycle helmet to serve as the foundation. 
And then mounted to this helmet would be this sort of aluminum frame. And the aluminum frame would hold the various servos and other components needed to move different facial features. And Forsey also used instructions stored on magnetic tape and sent wirelessly to microcontrollers in the helmets, which would allow the operations to be in sync with audio. So the audio would be saved on several tracks of magnetic tape. The instructions to the helmets would be saved on a separate track in sync with the audio. So this meant all that puppeteering for the mouths would be automatic. The character heads were kind of a more sophisticated version of the old audio animatronic idea that powered the Tiki Room decades earlier. There were no pneumatics or anything like that, but again, it was marrying audio with the operating instructions. It's just that Forsey's version was a little more complicated than making a metal reed vibrate to cl- complete a circuit. The performers also had additional controls for the head. Uh, typically, they would have a series of switches mounted on gloves. You know, the hands for these characters were these big mitten like things. So the performers could use their hands inside these mittens to operate little switches that were mounted on the palms of their hands on gloves inside the character and pushing a switch would create a specific movement, like maybe blinking an eye or moving ears or something along those lines. So they would just have to remember which switches controlled specific motions and make that part of their performance. So some of the puppeteering was done by the performers themselves. Some of the puppeteering was done through this pre-programmed audio track. Forsey's Alchemy 2 started to do some pretty decent business. They built animatronics for family destinations, including like restaurants and mall installations and more. Because again, this was a bit of a trend at this point in the in the 80s. Like there were everyone was interested in getting these animatronics, uh, some of which were more impressive than others, um, some of which were terrifying and <laughs> and kind of the subject of of a. Uh, Wonderful YouTube videos. I would say that Five Nights at Freddy's wouldn't even be a series without this era of creativity, let's say. That's the kind way of putting it. Forsey's team also worked on effects that were in a couple of movies, and Forsey got to mentor his coworkers and found great joy in finding people and encouraging them and growing their talents. Uh, Everyone in the docuseries who talks about Ken Forsey makes it very clear that they loved him and his style of leadership. They said he was very modest and quiet, but very encouraging and that he believed in his colleagues and that, you know, it was just a, it feels like it was just a really wholesome work environment. That's the best word I can use for it. He also kept coming up with ideas for various products, not just animatronics, and that included toys. So he kept a sketchbook where he would come up with an idea and he would sketch it out. And then often his team would take ideas from that sketchbook and try to figure out a way to actually make them into a real thing, like a prototype. One idea was based off the technology Alchemy 2 developed for those free roaming animatronic costumes. So Forsey wanted to create a toy that would essentially miniaturize the technology that was used for those costumes down to a plush animal form factor. This would give the toy the ability to you know, move its facial features. And when paired with a cassette tape that would have both 
audio and operational commands recorded to it, it could give this plush animal the ability to apparently speak and sing. The mouth would move in in conjunction with the words. It would be like you would have your own personal animatronic figure. And so the very, very long journey of the ideation of Teddy Ruxpin to the actual creation of the toy started to come together into something that kids of the 80s would recognize. But we're not there yet because this story really is full of twists and turns. So we're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what went into the creation of Teddy Ruxpin the toy and that character's impact on the 1980s. But first, let's take this break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans. The chaos 
in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, so Ken Forsey is looking at the possibility of creating a plush animal character that is able to use this sort of animatronic uh, approach and to use cassette tapes to have the instructions on how to, you know, move the mouth at the right moment. Like that's the genesis of the idea. Now, initially he was thinking about creating licensed characters, like not, not licensed characters from him, but to license characters from other companies and to secure retail deals with big outlets like Sears at the time. So the idea was that, all right, I'm going to try and license say Winnie the Pooh from the Walt Disney company. And I'm going to try and secure a deal with Sears to agree to a certain number of units. And that will give me the money to pay the licensing fee to develop the technology and to create the product that ultimately will then be sold in Sears. Everyone will be happy and we'll all become millionaires. So his initial write-up of this idea mentions Walt Disney by name, like the Disney company by name, and that the Winnie the Pooh property would be ideal for this because you could create a whole series of books, read along books for little kids and Winnie the Pooh could read stories to the little kids. You have the cassette tapes, got the story on it. Winnie the Pooh reads it. The kid can follow along with the book. Amazing idea, except Disney wasn't interested. The whole toy was going to need to be battery powered. Obviously you couldn't have like big cables going to it or anything. You weren't going to have industrial batteries at your disposal. So a lot of money was going to be needed to actually fund the development of this. The idea was sound, but to actually produce it was going to take some cash. And since Disney was like, no, I'm not interested. It, uh, it really meant there was nowhere to go from there. So then Forsey and his team tried to figure out ways to, you know, perhaps go a different route, because if Disney wasn't going to be interested, they had to find somewhere else to get the money. They in this in the meantime, they were still working on this technology, finding ways to make it as lightweight as possible, because obviously you don't want your plush toy to weigh 20 pounds. Uh, and if it's going to have a tape deck in it, that's going to add a lot to the weight just from that. So you wanted to have lightweight materials. You also didn't want to have mechanical systems that would, you know, be dangerous. You didn't want it, uh, a kid to stick their finger in you know, Winnie the Pooh's mouth and Winnie the Pooh ends up mauling the kid and chewing the finger off. That would be a bad thing. Uh, t- technically, Disney would probably frown on that. So their team was still working on the technology over at Alchemy 2. But as I said, the Disney deal didn't move forward. Forsey decided to go with a teddy bear form factor at that point. He still did not move to Teddy Ruxpin yet. The, the Teddy Ruxpin was a separate idea. It did not cross over here, but he was thinking about a teddy bear form factor because the teddy bear is obviously a familiar and beloved staple in children's toys, right? Everyone knows what a teddy bear is. And so Alchemy 2 ended up buying a teddy bear, gutting it. <laughs> 
<laughs> replacing it with mechanical parts, like the insides with mechanical parts. And they called this uh, monstrosity Joey Bear. This was just sort of a work of, you know, proof of concept kind of thing. So Joey Bear would have the mechanics and the tape deck built into it. So you'd have a tape deck as part of the toy. It's in its back. You'd place a tape in, push play, and then that would drive the the animations that you would see. Uh, and they they had a bunch of different ideas for what kind of stories the bear could tell. Like Goldilocks and the Three Bears was an obvious one. And it would also have a speaker on the inside. So Joey Bear, when he spoke, you could actually hear him tell the story and, and see his little mouth move and move his eyes and all that kind of stuff. One of Vorsey's colleagues, however, questioned the concept of Joey Bear. Uh, he argued that without something special about the bear itself, without some sort of personality hook, without something to set it apart from just being a teddy bear, there wouldn't be enough there for kids to really care about it. I mean, yes, it would appear to be able to sing and talk, which is huge, but if there's no other personality there, then it might be too generic and it might not be enough to capture kids attention and if you know whatever they were going to sell this thing for it was going to be a lot more than your typical teddy bear so the toy needed to have something in its personality and approach that would really appeal to kids and if it's just a teddy bear well there are a lot of other teddy bears out there that aren't going to cost $50 or more so 4C was Kind of, you know, the wind was taken out of his sails a bit, but he also felt that the the criticism was correct. And that's when his worlds collided and he chose to bring into alignment this project to make an animatronic toy for children with his decades old concept of the adventures of Teddy Ruxpin, the thing that was supposed to be a puppet show and then was going to be a series of children's books. So he changed the design of the character Teddy Ruxpin from just being this, you know, furry little fantasy creature into one that looked a lot more like a teddy bear. And this is why Iliops, Iliops being the species that Teddy Ruxpin is, that's why they look like teddy bears. It was a practical decision that had little to do with the name Teddy Ruxpin. It's so interesting to me that Teddy Ruxpin was independently arrived at from it being a teddy bear-like creature. So for the first time, 4C actually had a decent shot of getting this vision, this idea of this character and this fantasy world into an actual thing that other people could enjoy. Not just the people he worked with or the people in his family, but the world at large. So over the years, 4C had gone from this concept of this puppet show with nearly 40 episodes to there was a time where he was pushing it as a 90 minute special. That was when he was trying to get networks or even HBO to sign on to it. That that version condensed a lot of the story elements that had been broken out into those 40 episode ideas into a single narrative. And now he was thinking about adapting the story for a series of storybooks that would have an accompanying cassette tape with each episode lasting about 20 minutes. So it's kind of like he was going back to the drawing board, back to the format of those early puppet shows versus the 90-minute special he had worked on briefly in the late 70s. So in many ways, he would reapproach 
the story and divide it back up so that you would have these individual adventures that were connected by a, a, a larger narrative arc, but one where it's much more episodic, right? Like each episode is its own individual thing, sort of the way the puppet show was meant to be. So Forsey had this huge wealth of lore to draw from because he had been developing the story idea for more than 20 years at that point. And he still went in and, and fleshed more things out. Like he built in more details in the world that he had created, but the bones had been there for a very long time. So by the fall of 1984, Alchemy two had developed a working prototype of Teddy Ruxpin. It didn't look like the final Teddy Ruxpin doll that would come out the next year, but it was a good working prototype. Now at that time, Alchemy two was hitting a rough patch financially. Like they were in a cash flow crisis. In fact, uh, they were in danger of folding. They had gotten to a point where they weren't going to be able to make payroll. But 4C's team believed in him and in the work of Alchemy 2, and they agreed to continue working. Uh, they were taking like essentially half pay so that the company could continue to operate and they wouldn't you know, go without anything. But they, rather than leave the company, they tried to keep on working while taking less money. Hasbro expressed interest. And that could have been a huge, huge thing. I mean, Hasbro being an enormous toy company. However, Hasbro thought that it was going to take like three years to bring the product to the market. And that would not work for Alchemy 2. The company wouldn't be able to hold out that long. It would have been bankrupt before three years were up. So 4C kind of had to turned down that offer, even though that must have been a very difficult decision because like, even though, you know, you can't make it Hasbro being the company, it's, it's hard to just walk away from that. So Forsey then starts reaching out to other people, just trying to see if he can find some investor who will pour some money into the, uh, the project and allow it to get to a point where it can become an actual thing. And he reaches out to a former executive who had retired at the ripe old age of 37, a guy named Don Kingsborough. By the way, Kingsborough still still working today in in as an executive in the tech space. Uh, but yeah, he uh, he had originally retired at 37 years old. So who is Kingsborough? Well, in the 1970s and the early 1980s, he was the president of a little company called Atari, and uh, he stopped being president of Atari in 1983, you know, the same year when video games, home video games kind of stopped being a thing in the United States. There was this big video game crash, but Kingsborough, he, he got out and made a lot of money. So he was able to retire and kind of sidestep some of the worst drama that unfolded in the wake of the video game crash. Forsey got in touch with him and Don Kingsborough agreed somewhat reluctantly to hear Forsey's sales pitch. So Kingsborough flies back to California and he meets with Forsey, who hands him a prototype. And this teddy bear starts to speak and sing to Don Kingsborough. And immediately he was enchanted by it. So Forsey was hoping that he could get Don Kingsborough to invest in the project. But instead, Kingsborough says, no, I, I don't want to give you money. I want to actually make this. That's as according to the docu series I was talking about earlier in this episode. So by mid February 1985, 
Alchemy 2 and Kingsboro enter into an agreement for the licensing rights to Teddy Ruxpin and Animagic, which is the technology that Alchemy 2 uh, had named that actually animated Teddy Ruxpin. Kingsboro goes on to contact some entrepreneurs to kind of form a partnership, and he demonstrates the prototype, which consistently wows other business leaders. And they form a new company called Worlds of Wonder. So you have Alchemy 2, which is actually doing the technology side of things, the development, and you have Worlds of Wonder. That's going to be the company that produces the final product and sells it. They go out as Worlds of Wonder and they seek funding for Teddy Ruxpin and uh, it becomes a joint project between Worlds of Wonder and Alchemy 2. By the way, the name Worlds of Wonder was reportedly reverse engineered because Don Kingsborough had come up with the acronym first. He wanted the acronym WOW because if it were on a stock listing, people would take notice. Like if the stock is called WOW, that might be enough to to push the value. So very, <laughs> a very salesperson kind of pitch to that. And then once he figured out that he wanted wow, he had to work backwards to say, what does the W-O-W stand for? That's when they eventually got to, to Worlds of Wonder. So the Worlds of Wonder version of Teddy Ruxpin would build from the foundation of this prototype. They made some changes in order to make it production ready. They wanted it to be as easy to produce, as cheap to produce as possible, so that you have a good profit margin on these things. You know, you've got some expensive components going in there. Uh, so you want to try and control costs as best you can. So part of that was sourcing very cheap tape decks that could be used as the tape deck incorporated into a Teddy Ruxpin. They used a technology that in the docuseries they refer to as being servo-like. So not an actual servo, but these would be the little electric motors that would drive the, the facial movements in the character. I think originally they had three of these inside the heads of the characters, and then uh, more recent versions have reduced that down to two. Worlds of Wonder got its funding, received about $15 million in investments from the Abercrombie family. Alchemy 2 was able to keep going because now they had a fresh influx of cash. They were developing the technology. It, it reinvigorated the company. And in fact, they had to hire people on in order to meet the demand of now being responsible for creating a toy that was going to become a, an honest to goodness product. They had to bring more help on. So it was the reversal of fortune in the best way. So they start working on fleshing out the world of Teddy Ruxpin. They start working on writing the books, 13 books for the first six months which would also require recording the cassette versions, recording original music for these, these uh, books. Philip Barron gets hired on to become the voice of Teddy Ruxpin, and he would record uh, the audio that was used on cassette tapes. So when you watch those classic commercials, it's Philip Barron's voice you hear on them. To program the movements, this was really cool. So, you know, you would lay down the audio track. So Philip Barron would go in and record his audio for a Teddy Ruxpin book. This would then be handed over to puppeteers who would take the audio track, they would play it back, and they would use digital controls similar to what you would find on a remote control car. They would use that to send uh, direct commands to a puppet head. Uh, it would just be the head. You didn't need the whole body of Teddy Ruxpin, but you have essentially like a Teddy Ruxpin head mounted on a pole 
with cables going to it and using this little control panel, you could make the mouth open and closed and you could do the same with like eyes. And so what they would do is they'd run the audio track and then the puppeteer would move the, the digital controls in time with the audio track. And those inputs would be recorded onto the magnetic tape on a separate track. So this is what would be then transferred to the cassettes and it would play back both the audio and the instructions that the puppeteer had made while matching the soundtrack to the character's movements. Uh, my sister is a professional puppeteer. So to me, this is just one of those really fascinating elements of the creation of Teddy Ruxpin. So Hasbro had said it would take three years to get Teddy Ruxpin to a point where they could put it on the market. Uh, the Alchemy 2 and Worlds of Wonder did it in less than a year. In fact, in September 1985, remember, they had signed the agreement in mid-February 1985. September 1985, Worlds of Wonder holds a debut of the Teddy Ruxpin toy in Central Park in New York City. Uh, with Teddy Ruxpin actually doing some of the presenting, it was very cute. You can actually see this in the docuseries. They had a very expensive toy on their hands because when Teddy Ruxpin would hit store shelves, it had the price tag of $70, essentially. And each additional book with cassette would cost $20. You would get one, you know, Teddy Ruxpin and the airship with the base toy. But if you wanted more than one, you had to pay 20 bucks a pop, which means if we adjust for inflation, Teddy Ruxpin would cost you about $200 today to buy. And then each book would cost around $56 to buy, which is pretty darn expensive. And even with that high price tag, Teddy Ruxpin became something of a phenomenon, although only briefly. It was highly in demand. It became the most popular toy for the end of 1985 and maintained its position for 1986. Like, this was a toy that was well-marketed. Kids loved the idea of it. Uh, it was fascinating. Anyone who was into animatronics would automatically be really charmed by this toy. Like It was, used to be something that you would only see if you went to a theme park or a place like Chuck E. Cheese, and now you could actually own one. It was really cool. A lot of people thought, oh, I could put my, uh, you know, Black Sabbath cassette tape in here and have Teddy Ruxpin rocking out uh, didn't work because the operational instructions wouldn't be present on Black Sabbath. No one, Black Sabbath didn't think to include a track that was just operational instructions for Teddy Ruxpin, which is really a shame because that would have been amazing. But no, because that information wasn't there, you could play it. Like it would work as like a teddy bear shaped speaker, but it wouldn't, <laughs> Teddy Ruxpin wouldn't be singing along. <laughs> so didn't quite get to that level. Now, uh, there was something else that was on the rise that would ultimately steal some of the thunder from Teddy Ruxpin, and that was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, the video game crash from 1983 had really depressed the video game market to a point where a lot of people just figured it was never going to be a thing again, that it was just a, a fluke. There was something that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, and would never come back around. Nintendo proved them wrong. Right. Nintendo created a product that people actually wanted. But this also meant Teddy Ruxpin's star was on the decline and it had only been out for, you know, a little bit more than a year. Worlds of Wonder overextended itself. They had uh, 
incorrectly predicted there was going to be increased demand for Teddy Ruxpin in 1987. And as a result, they overextended themselves financially. And uh, they ultimately spent too much and didn't generate enough revenue. And by 1988, they were going into bankruptcy. And then by 1991, they ceased to be. Hasbro swooped in and acquired the rights to Ruxpin, which is, again, it's funny because Hasbro had the chance of doing that earlier, but 4C wasn't able to take that opportunity. So Hasbro came in, got the licensing rights uh, around 1996. Um, they stopped producing Teddy Ruxpin. There just wasn't enough demand. In 1998, a company called Yes Entertainment secured licensing rights, but only briefly. Something happened that made that fall apart. And I'm sure it might even be covered in the docu-series, but I wasn't able to watch all 10 hours of it in preparation for this episode. So I don't know yet. Uh, I do plan to watch the rest of it, by the way, because it is quite good. Teddy Ruxpin would resurface again in 2005. Uh, then it faded away again. And now it's back. <laughs> it came back in 2017. It's a different toy now. Instead of using cassette tapes, uh, it actually pairs with an app because, of course, it does. But that means that, you know, you you can use the app to uh, play with the toy and to have it read out stories. And um, you're, you're not limited to whatever happens to be in stock, right? Because it's an app, it's way easier to get access to the material you want. So yeah, that's the story of Teddy Ruxpin's origins, which again, pretty intense. Like so much had to come together for that toy to become a thing. And it really was an iconic toy in the mid 1980s. Like I said, if I had just been a little bit younger, I probably would have wanted one myself. But at that stage, I, I was wanting other stuff. I couldn't tell you what I wanted at age 10. I can't, you know, maybe, I don't know, Ghostbusters stuff, maybe. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was, um, it was really one of those that made a huge splash. Like the, this technology looked like it was next generation stuff when it came out. And when you start to learn the full story about what went into the creation of that toy and the work of Ken Forsey and, and sort of his, his very gentle approach toward uh, work and creativity, you get a new appreciation for it. I hope you enjoyed this. I know it was a long episode, again, a fraction of the length of the docuseries, which goes into much, much, much more detail about Ken Forsey's life, his work, and uh, especially the lore of Teddy Ruxpin. There are entire sections that are dedicated just to fleshing out what that's, how that story coalesced. Uh, I highly recommend checking that out. Again, it's on YouTube, and you can, you can find that uh, by doing a quick search about Teddy Ruxpin and Ken Forsey. And uh, yeah, you should check it out if you're at all interested in this topic. That's it. For this epic episode, I hope you are all well, and I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.